It was Christmas Day 1978, and my family was opening Christmas gifts on Christmas morning as commanded by the Lord in Hezekiah 3.16, which says, Thou shalt open Christmas gifts on Christmas morning, and not Christmas Eve, lest the Lord smite thee. It was my most memorable Christmas growing up, in part because I still possess two of the gifts that I received that morning. One, a shotgun that I still hunt with to this day. Another is a leather Bible, which resides on a shelf in my office across the street. But it was also memorable because it was the Christmas of surprises, the Christmas of unwrapping unexpected Gifts, And if you'll permit me a bit of show and tell uh, here this evening, I will show you what my biggest surprise was. It was this. It actually wasn't exactly this. I bought this off eBay. But it was this toy. It was a cutting edge, at least for 1978, electronic game called Battlestar Galactica Space Alert. I spent the better part of 1979 becoming proficient at this little game. Uh, It's not a marketable skill, the best I can understand it. My dad pointed that out frequently throughout 1979, but it was a fun thing to have nonetheless. Now, as I remember it, it was one of the last gifts that I opened at the end of a day when I had admittedly been spoiled rotten. And as I remember it, I probably opened it last because it was really the smallest of the gifts for me around the tree that day. And we all know that the good stuff is in the big boxes. And so I'd kind of overlooked it, maybe even not noticed it had been there. But it ended up being something that I remember fondly to this day. Now, tucked away from the notice of most of our annual review of Luke's retelling retelling of events of that first Christmas is a gift that he leaves for us that many of us leave unopened. We tend to close the book on Christmas after we open the big stuff in the first 21 verses of Luke chapter 2, after Luke tells us that the shepherds return to the fields rejoicing and praising God. And because we do so, we pull up short And we miss Luke's biggest Christmas gift to us. In the verses that we tend to leave unopened every Christmas, Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary traveled with their newborn to the temple to present him and an offering before the Lord, which, as Luke points out, was required of every parent whose first child was a boy. And Luke tells us, that as they arrive, they catch the eye of a man named Simeon. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, Luke says that now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus. Luke tells us that Simeon was an old man with a promise 
The promise being that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. The words waiting on the consolation of Israel could just have easily been phrased waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. To fulfill this promise to him, Luke records for us that the Spirit moved him to come into the temple at the precise time when Joseph and Mary brought the infant Jesus in to dedicate him to God. And when Simeon sees this child, the Lord opens his eyes to see that Jesus was that promised Messiah, prompting Simeon to take the child into his arms and offer up a a short hymn of praise to God. And it is these, these words of praise that he voices that is the most precious gift of Luke to give us concerning Christmas. And we must not leave these words unopened. Simeon is filled by the Spirit and taking the child in his arms. In verse 29, we see he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your Salvation. He's looking at Jesus, a wiggly, at this point, 40-day-old infant. But he doesn't see a baby, per se. He sees God's salvation personified. Simeon understood that this was more than a baby. This baby was the manifestation of God's salvation. And who was this salvation for? In verse 31, he continues saying that this salvation is that which has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This salvation that Jesus personified was for all people. He says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. God was manifesting his salvation to Simeon for all people. Now, we can amen that. We do so regularly, uh, really absent-mindedly. But don't miss the scandal of the words that Simeon was speaking to the Jews of Christ's day. From their perspective, when the Messiah came, he was going to save Israel and destroy everyone else. But Simeon says that this Messiah is coming to save them and the ones that they believed the Messiah was actually coming to destroy. He was coming to offer the same salvation to pagan idol worshipers as he was for Jewish religious types. Christ's entire life was spent manifesting God's love to people who never dreamed it was possible that God could love them. And they didn't believe that it was possible in part because some of God's very best made them feel like the very worst. Do you really want to grasp what Simeon was saying? He was saying that this baby would love prostitutes and offer them salvation. He would love adulteresses and offer them salvation. He would love materialistic 
rich young men and offer them salvation. He would love a legalist Pharisee named Nicodemus and offer him salvation. In short, Simeon is saying that what is provided for us in Christ is the possibility for a salvation that is wider in scope than the boundaries that you and I tend to set for it. It is wide enough to take in the morally upright and the morally repugnant. It is equally, in fact, necessary for the morally upright as it is for the morally repugnant. In Christ, God provides a salvation for all. Now, verse 33 tells us that his parents marvel at what Simeon has just prophesied about their child. What parent wouldn't love those kinds of words? I've never met a parent who doesn't beam like a lighthouse when someone brags on their child. And as now the parent of adult children, I can tell you we never get over it. So Joseph and Mary here experience a wonder at the spiritual implications that Simeon has outlined for their child that is really kind of mingled with just plain old parental pride. And if it ended right there, this would be one of the sweetest notes sounded in Luke's retelling of Christ's birth. But Luke does not stop there because Simeon does not stop there. He tempers their enthusiasm because he sees something else for the baby resting in his arms and something else for us. He sees that in this baby, God will bring all of humanity to a point of crisis. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them, the parents, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. Simeon is saying that for many, Jesus will not be a cause for celebration. Though Jesus had come to offer salvation for all, not everyone would embrace it because not everyone would embrace him. Some would see Jesus and fall. They would collapse, unwilling to leave their lives of sin or their lives of morality and follow him. And some would see Jesus and rise, leave behind their old lives and the fool's gold of morality and follow him as their new king. And because of this crisis of decision that Jesus will represent, there will be a cost. And with that dark realization that a cost would be required, hanging heavy in the air, Simeon looks at Mary, little more than a child herself, a child who has carried such a heavy load with this infant already. He looks into her eyes and he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. There will be a cost to you as well, Mary. The salvation will cost you your son. Now we have to understand this is the first time that that had ever occurred to these young parents. Like most Jews, they associated the coming of the Messiah with the joyous words of triumph 
over the wicked found in the Psalms. And they had not yet associated the work of the Messiah with the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. They hadn't connected that to Jesus. You see, what they had not yet understood was that their son was the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. A sacrifice who would take the place of the prostitutes and adulteresses and materialistic young men and the morally upright who needed salvation. They had not yet understood the words of Isaiah 53 when the prophet writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He substituted himself as payment for the prostitute's prostitution and the adulteress's adultery and the materialist's materialism and the legalist legalism and the substitute for my pride and my selfishness and your gossip and your secret addiction or whatever else it is we try to hide away. For all of us, salvation demands a substitute and a substitute required an incarnation. The great British theologian John R. W. Stott said it this way in his classic book, The Cross of Christ. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And the means of that substitution was God himself becoming a baby. This is why Simeon held this child in his arms and could say to God that he had seen salvation. Now, there was one other person that Luke wants us to pay attention to, another senior adult who was there that day, a woman named Anna. Luke tells us that she had been a widow for decades and had been sustained in that emptiness by living in the temple and praying and fasting before the Lord. Luke tells us that she witnessed this whole scene and she dedicated the rest of her days to telling everyone about it. In verse 38, he says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It is with her evangelistic example in mind that we come to the climax of our Christmas Eve service, sharing the light of the Christ candle with one another and singing Silent Night. As we light the Christ candle, the fifth candle of Advent, we see, like Simeon with our own eyes, the Lord's salvation has come. And we take his light, making it our own, and share it with others through the lighting of our individual candles we, like Anna, in doing so, proclaim to those waiting for the redemption that Christ has 